Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to our Name Tags Chat Podcast today. I am super excited to be joined by Ezra Freck. Ezra, this is, I mean, this is a story that's kind of going to blow you away. You had your first, so a congenital limb deficiency, and you had your first prosthetic when you were 11 months old. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. 11 months old, and you had your first running leg when you were four years old. Yeah, when I was four, I got, I got my first running leg, yeah. And we'll talk about like what a running leg is, but as at, at 14 in 2019, were you 14 still in 2019? You had a pretty big year in 2019, right? Yeah, that, that was my big year. I mean, I'd imagine when you're, when you're so young and you're coming up, like every year is a big year, but this is really a big year. So named to the U.S. Uh, Paralympic track and field team, to the World Junior Athletics team and won three medals there, a gold and two bronzes, to the uh, Para Pan, Am- Pan American Games where you won two medals. And then also, so, so World Juniors and then actually World Championships as well. So the Athletic World Championships in 2019. So 2019, for those of you, because it seems like seems like time has sort of stood still right now. Like it's totally changed. 2019 was leading right into 2020, which is Tokyo leading into those games. This is, this is absolutely mind boggling. You're supposed to be potentially the youngest athlete, the youngest male athlete on a summer athletics Paralympic what was what was the stipulation going to be? What were you hoping for? And and you hadn't been named to the team yet, right? The Paralympic team for yeah, Tokyo, no, or had you? Yeah, they have they haven't named the team yet. If the games would have been last summer, like they're planning to be, I would have potentially potentially been the youngest track athlete for sure. I'm not sure about the other sports. I don't know what their what uh, what ages their athletes were, but I was I was planning on being. Uh, on track to be the youngest athlete on the track team. And I think I still might end up being the youngest on the track team. Um, but who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, yeah. So I don't really know what uh, what's going to look like and if I'll still be the youngest or not, but it'll be cool to just go. I'll still be young, but just, I don't know if it'll be the youngest, but it's all right. Uh, so, so yeah, so you are, so you're 15 right now and, but you'll still be, you'll still be 15 in 2021 right or or when no your birthday's in may right is that right or 16 i'll be 16 in 2021 you'll be 16 in 2021 and what are your what are your three events we've got to get you to describe your three events and how you do it because one of the things i want you to get to is why in the long jump you jump with your prosthetic foot Mm -hmm. whereas in the high jump you don't so, yeah. so please describe your three events, and then we'll, then we'll get to the intricacies of those events. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I do the 100 meter, I do the long jump, and I do the high jump. Um, so those are, my, those are the three events that I do. Um, kind of cool. I pretty much picked the most fun events that you could possibly. I'm just jumping high, jumping far, and a short sprint. So it's possibly the three most fun events 
in track and field, thankfully. Um, but yes, yeah, so back to what you said, like I, I long jump, I jump off of the prosthetic off of the blade. Um, and then high jump, I jump off of my, my sound. Like I don't jump off the prosthetic for that. And that's, that's partially just because um, the blade is really good for creating forward motion. And I'm already bringing so much speed in the long jump approach that when I hit the blade, it allows me to go really far this way. But the blade isn't great for going really high straight up, like in the high jump when you're having to jump directly up. Um, so it's definitely like playing around with it and trying different things. But I did end up, you know, deciding that I think it's better to long jump off the blade and high jump off of my sound leg. Yeah. Because a fair amount of people long jump off of their blade, right? Well, and basically, basically every long jumper in the Paralympic system long jumps off their blade. Yeah. How does that work? Because back when Oscar Pistorius was trying to run in the Olympics, there was the question about, could you get the same kind of energy or possibly more energy from your prosthetic leg, from the blade? And, and they determined, you know, a lot of people said that, that you can't get that same energy out of the foot. But then why would you jump off of, I mean, you said that it, it projects you out further, but it seems like they're, that, that, your, that your true leg might have more power if that were the case, right? So what's the difference? Why did you choose to do that? Um, I, think, I think I had a lot of influence from the community talking about, because also I only have one knee. And if I'm pounding on it a lot in long jump and then I'm sprinting on it and then I'm going to high jump on that same one and high jump, I think I'm doing like a little jog and then I take the jump, but long jump, you're running full speed. And to be doing jumps over and over and over again on my, my right leg, my sound leg, it could be a big risk of injury, especially since I'm, I'm high jumping and I'm long jumping and I'm sprinting. And then as well, the blade, um, the blade is really great for long jump, just because I was saying it, it pushes you a lot far, farther forward than it does necessarily up. So that's why people use it for sprinting and long jumping. And then all the guys in the community are like, dude, you gotta, you gotta work on jumping off the blade because it, it decreases the load on your sound leg, lower risk of injury, all that sort of stuff. And as well, I mean, it's great. And, and, and it's, a, it's, definitely, it's definitely something that's been, it's difficult to learn too, because you're thinking about you're jumping off of something that you can't really feel. So, so you don't know where it is in space. And so it's a lot it's difficult, but yeah, it did end up working out. And a lot of the top guys are using it. So it's the feel, but it's also the timing too, right? Because you, you need to hit the board on the long jump. And I, when I was younger, I, I jumped off my right leg. I would just sort of run and do it for fun. But once I got, once I got serious, all the guys were like, I think it's time you try out the blade. I think it's time. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, I started becoming more comfortable on the left side and realized it was probably more beneficial for me to switch. So that's when I, I switched basically when I sort of began to take track more seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was probably the beginning of the 2018 season. And I, when I started realizing that, you know, I maybe had a chance to make the team the next year and I started jumping off the blade. Can you tell people, cause so you did mention that you only have one knee. So you're in the T63 class, which is one above the knee amputation. Yeah, you know your information. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to know this, right? This is, this is what's going on. And, but you're competing against other people in a similar situation, right? So other people who have an above the knee amputation. What are, your, what are your distances, what are your heights, and what are your times? So you have three events. So, yeah. so long jump, how far are you um, jumping? Last time I competed, which was a while ago, 
um, because obviously because of the pandemic and everything, I was jumping around 18, 19 feet. I'm looking to get close to 20, hopefully into 21, 22 as this next season approaches. Um, in high jump, I, I jumped in the last meet I jumped out, I cleared five, eight, five feet, eight. But then now as this season's coming up, I'm looking to be getting above six feet pretty easily. And then hopefully put, putting myself in a position to medal in, in the high jump as well. And then the hundred meter, um, I was running about 13 seconds. And then now, you know, with a lot of training, a lot of hopefully by the time Tokyo rolls around, I'll be running around 12, 12 low. Um, so yeah, those are my times. They're a lot different what I'm doing in practice now than what happened um, back in 2019. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that's kind of where I'm at right now with my, my results. And that's a product of training. You're continuing to train hard, but you're also continuing to mature. I mean, it's, it's one of those things I've listened to some of your, some of your interviews. You've had a fairly deep voice for a long time. You're a 15 year old <laughs> kid, but it doesn't sound like you're going through, you know, going through puberty and having your voice crack and all that stuff. You sound like, you sound like a man, but let's, uh, let's go back to that. So, so hoping to get down to 12 in the hundred meters what do you have to run to qualify so to hit the hit the international standard and what do you have to you made at world championships you made the finals so you're you're in the top eight or you were in the top eight at world championships sometimes for paralympics you get some other people who might not have made it to world championships and you might get a more full field yeah. what do you what do you feel like you have to run in order to feel like you're really competitive and and the other thing is too i mean just for the audience this is your first games, but you might well be at your real peak in LA in 2028 or possibly in, in Paris and hopefully, hopefully in Paris and LA, right? Keep it for that full year, full four years between. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I, I think um, I'm in, in a seat in a year where it was the year before the Paralympics, like you were saying, a lot of guys were sort of taking, they're not taking breaks, but it wasn't the most competitive field there's ever been, let's say. So I was, I was amazing. I made the hundred meter final. It was awesome. Um, but also in, in the Paralympic system, the way they select the team is if I qualify in the high jump, if I make this U S standard in the high jump to make the Tokyo games, they'll put me in the hundred meter and they'll put me in the long jump. So what happened in 2019 was I made the standard in the high jump. I didn't make it in the other two events, but they still put me in it because I was still competitive enough to compete with the guys at the, that level. So assuming I am still able to make the standard in the high jump in 2021, then I will be put in the other events. Or if I'm making the long jump, they'll still put me in the high jump in the hundred meter if I'm still somewhat competitive compared to the other guys. Um, and that would be great you know, to just go no matter what, but I obviously want to make the standard in all three and to be competitive in the hundred meter. Um, I do need to be running 12 lows and 12, like 12, two, 12, three. Cause those guys at world championships, the, the gold medal was uh 1245. And I know I'm capable of running really fast. Who knows if that's fast enough to medal. I, I, I hope it is. And I hope it's fast enough to be competitive with those guys who are 25, 23 and basically like, way like bigger than me and like look way scarier but yeah we'll see what happens so that's that's about where I need to be yeah do they know how old you are when you're stepping up to the line are they giving you a hard time like oh hey watch out you know don't swear or anything we've got a kid here they I was sort of like not to say I wasn't taken seriously because I, I was but I was sort of like the the future I was like the next little guy and so like I was 
when I was there, I was talking to all of them, just trying to gain as much knowledge. And everyone's so sweet and everyone's so nice. And so, I mean, there's a few guys who are a little bit more chippy, but, you know, we don't have to talk about them. But, the, I mean, everyone's pretty nice most of the time. So I was able to talk to a lot of the guys and, and they were all, you know, helping me out with advice and this and that. So it was, it was a really great environment, but I was more like the little guy, like, Oh, he's like, he made the, like that sort of guy. Hopefully it's not like that in 2021, but <laughs> that's what it was like in 2019. They're treating you as the mascot, but for you, the experience of having been there, having earned your way into the finals, you know that you've already done that. So that that starts changing things they might look at you they might look down at you a little bit but at the same time it really is uh you know it really is something that uh that i think that they're going to be worried about that that experience because the next time you're going to come in way more comfortable way more confident let's talk through the specific events because i want to get to kind of like your your goals as far as uh, as what you need to jump and the others, but can you talk us through what you do in a 100? How does a 100 go? What are the technical parts of it? Yeah, yeah, the 100 meter is is really such a fun race and it flies by so quick. I mean, long jump and high jump, you're out there for two hours. The 100 meter can pass you by like that. And so it's all about just being focused, being attentive, being in the moment and um, the hundred meter is the whole, my, my, the best part of my race has always been, uh, my start. And so even at world championships and the finals, um, I hadn't, I hadn't really trained as well for the hundred meter as I should have. I my stamina wasn't as great. I was sort of, I got winded really early. And so what happened was the race started out and I mean, I was just happy to be there, dude. It was just, but I, I got, I got out and the first the first 20 meters, I was with the, the, the big guys. I was with the world record holder. I'm with the gold medalist. I'm like in with them. And then, and I was like, okay. And then as the race began, as we got to 30 meters, 40 meters, you could just tell how much stronger, how much faster they were. And they started to pull away. And I just didn't have the stamina to keep up with them. And so the 100 meter, basically for me right now, my goal is, you know, we've changed up a lot of things. You've adjusted my form, but I just want to get out as quick as I can and just try to be ahead of the Packers fast as I'm going out of the start and then just keep on driving and maintaining that speed throughout the whole race. Cause you could have a fast 50, 60 meters. Like you could be ahead of the pack, but if you can't hold that, the other guys are just maintaining and, and they're picking up their speed the whole way. And so what happened was I got out pretty quick and then I sort of died down. And so for me, my mentality is like, I want to get out and I want to maintain that speed, hopefully become, you know, and continue it throughout the race. So I'm not, getting out pretty quick and staying with them and then like dying off. But Well, it's an interesting thing too, because if you get out quickly, you can change somebody else's race, right? That they, they see you, they react to you and they don't do what they're supposed to do. And so it, it could give you a great opportunity. Is it like able-bodied running? So like, like the hundred meters able-bodied, one of the biggest parts of it, right? You have your start, you have your drive, you know, your acceleration, all, all this stuff. But, but really you're trying from 60 meters on, you're trying not to decelerate. Yeah, yeah. Is and that the same situation for you? Yeah, that's, that's the same situation. And that's, that's what happened in 2019. It's because I was just like, I, I mean, I gave it my best. It was such a, it was such a surreal experience and I was so young and, and all this stuff. But like I, at 30, 40 meters, and I was really kicking it up. And then by the time I got to like 60, 70, I was just slowing down. And these other guys are maintaining their speed. They're not decelerating at all. 
And so that's something that we've really had to work on is just like my stamina. Like these guys are, you know, so much bigger and stronger than me. Like what, what can I do to make sure that I don't decelerate halfway through the race? But yes, exactly. It's the same thing with uh, a body burn. And the thing is, it's funny that you talk about, you know, your endurance effectively for a hundred meters, right? Your stamina for a hundred meters. What do you have to do? What's the training? I mean, because part of it is like, part of it is your upper body as well, right? It's not just your legs. It's maintaining that form, that strength. What are your objectives? What do you have to work on? What do you have to get stronger at? Yeah, I, for me, it was, it was just overall, I just wasn't very strong I'm looking at these at these guys like dude, they're built they're just like shredded and I was just this like I mean I was I was in shape I was I was like able to still be there and I was able to beat tons of other guys who were also grown and, and fully you know full adults basically um, but it was just I just wasn't I wouldn't say I was in the best shape I possibly could I wasn't you know as strong and as lean and I didn't have the best. We didn't do a lot of like stamina building. So I wasn't able to keep up with that speed the whole th- throughout the entire race. And also it's difficult just to start on a blade, right? I mean, it's, it's such, it's such a, there's so many different factors that play into having a good start and then maintaining that and the alignment where your blades hitting at certain points. And if you're pushing off of the back or if you're bouncing off of it and sometimes you're up, it's like, there's so much going on. And um, I was really focused in 2019 on the high jump because that was the, that was, I knew I was going to be able to make the team if I really focused on high jump. So I didn't put as much time to the hundred meter as I probably should have. And I didn't put as much time to long jump as I, I should have. Cause I was so focused on making the team in the high jump. Um, but those guys were just, you know, ridiculous athletes and full grown men and way stronger than me. And so, you know, this year we're like, okay, let's get to their level. And we're, we did, we didn't really weight lift as much going into 2019, um, but now we're starting to weightlift more. We're starting to build more muscle. We're starting to really take things differently. Cause like if I, I need to, I need to match them if I want to compete with guys that are like 25 and just like, you know? Oh, exactly. But the thing is, this is in some ways, obviously you were there to compete as well as you possibly could, but it was also your introduction to the world. And in some ways it was opening your eyes to what do I need to do here? I've seen these guys on TV and it looks entirely different on TV than it does when you're on the track with them. Can we take just a quick step back and just describe what your blade is? We've talked about your running blade. Can you describe what it looks like and how you use it? Yeah, the blade is basically another version of the prosthetic that I use for walking, except it's lighter and then on the bottom, it has this sort of C shape, just like a, like they call it a cheetah blade, or that's like a nickname for it because um, it's curved, like the back leg of a cheetah that is also curved. Um, and basically, it's just like uh, it's like a carbon fiber. I wouldn't even call it a spring, but it basically just you know allows me to be able to push off of something and the closest resemblance to the power that I would be getting out of an able-bodied foot and you know whole able-bodied leg. So, so that's- it. It flexes though, right? So you push into it, that carbon fiber flexes. Flexes to an extent, and then yes, it it flexes. Yeah. So that's that. So I I'll, I I you know I I lift my leg up and then I bring it right back down and it'll it'll land, it'll compress a little bit and it'll push me onto onto the next step. But granted, a lot of people think like, oh, you're just running off of a spring. But like, no, if you don't do anything, if you throw it up and I throw it right back down, nothing's gonna happen. It's pushing every you know pushing into it and then 
using the very little muscle I even have in half of my leg to push that off and then maintain the step and continue without falling out of line and holding. It's like, there's a lot of different components and people, a lot of people just think it's just like, oh, you just throw a spring down and bounce. It's like, it's very, it's not even, if I were to throw it down, it would not be bouncing anywhere. Just basically stay right there. So, yeah. Right. So these are the different classes, right? So the, the below the knee amputees will basically have, have a similar kind of blade, but they have a knee. Yes. So you have the blade and then you have a prosthetic knee. And how does, how does the prosthetic knee work? Because you're trying to go fast. You're trying to make this thing turn over. How do you get the knee to match up with your other leg so that you can stay symmetrical and stay upright and run fast? Yeah, you're, I mean, you're hitting the nail right on the head. It's really difficult. And, um, and a lot of people get confused. They think every amputee is the same. Like, no, having a knee makes a big difference because you're able to, you basically have more control over the bottom part of your leg. Because I have, I basically have no control over the bottom half of below the knee. I have no control. Someone could be swinging it like that. I can control the top part that will maybe affect what the bottom does, but I don't have specific control over the bottom half of my leg. So the knee is basically designed to be whipped at speeds that are ridiculously fast. So it's able, so I'm, it's, it's able to keep up with my right leg in a sense. But then again, it's so much that goes into even just a normal training day, just because there's so many components. Sometimes, you know, I'm swinging it and it's a little angled out and then I put it on incorrectly and it's adjusted this way and then I'm not hitting right or I'm not extending out. There's so many different components that play into just like a normal running session. Um, but yes, the knee is definitely, and I mean, the way they've designed it is amazing. So I'm able to kick it really fast. I'm able to, but it's definitely difficult because you know, there's so much, so much that plays into, plays into the sprint. But, and it's not just a loose hinge as well. This knee is not a, just a loose hinge. There's, there is resistance to that knee. So it's not like you just kick it out and it just swings and you hope to land on your foot effectively in the next yeah. step. There is, there is um, certain amounts of tension that can be applied and you can adjust that so that you have the best feel for where it is and which is basically the most comfortable if you had a full range knee that was swinging all the way back you nest you don't necessarily want your knee to be swinging all the way back hitting the other so part of the socket and then coming all the way back again because you're losing time but then so they have some sort of tension so that it almost like comes forward a lot more easy there's there's lots of different um parts of the knee that you can play around with and adjust the tension here adjust the tension there um to cater it to how you feel more comfortable and which is whichever is the best for the person sprinting Right, exactly. So you have to tune your knee yes, to yeah. work for you and your prosthetic so that you are going straight. I mean, the whole idea, it's 100 meters, right? And it's like you want to go as fast as possible. And if you're going, if you're going in one direction or another, if you're serpentining down the track, you're just flat out not going to be not going to be fast. Has that worked? Have you done a lot of work to uh, to, to tune that and how much time and how much effort and is it frustrating? Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a great team at hanger clinic who has been there supporting us for a while and they're, they're amazing. I mean, my dad, everyone who's sort who's in my, my close circle can attest to this. There's been nice. We're out there at 10, 11, it's pitch black. We have phone flashlights, we're adjusting things and then we're running and then they're like, what, what did you feel there? What, I mean, the technology is really the, able, the reason I'm able to compete and the reason all these guys in the community are able to compete on such a high level, but it's a lot of work 
it's a lot of stress. I mean, it's just so much going on, you know, we're adjusting the tension here and then this and that, the, the fleck and, and adjusting the height, the angle, there's so much that's going on where, you know, with where all these little laser pointers and all these little taking the angles and videos and how does this feel and adjusting the height, there's so much that goes into it. So many late nights, so many hours spent, you know, on the track dialing everything in. Um, so yeah. Would have, yeah, they'd have no idea, right? I mean, it's like for a sprinter, 100 meters is one of those things that you think, well, anybody in the world can do it, right? Because anybody, anybody can run. There's not much technology. For you, there's a lot more technology and to work in concert with that technology. You can be as fit as possible and the technology doesn't work and you don't have a great race. And so there's just that much more that goes into it. Now with the, with the long jump, it's a similar kind of deal, right? So you're, you're sprinting on a long jump and then you have to, and then you have to jump. What are your, you said your distance is about 18, 19. You're hoping to get to 20 feet. What do you, what, what is the qualifying standard? Because for those people who don't know, there is a Paralympic qualifying standard. There's an A standard, there's a B standard. And, and one, it help, you have to make those in order to get into the event, but then also it's part of the determining factor because Paralympic sport is so difficult in that you're not necessarily even competing sometimes for a spot with other people in the T63 class where you might be competing against somebody in a wheelchair for a spot on Paralympic games because it's based on your proximity to, it gets really confusing, your proximity to or how much you've exceeded the, the standard by and, and then it's a, a ranking a ranking order. So it's, it's really challenging, but what, what would the standard be or what is the standard for the long jump? Yeah, the standard for the long jump is really far. It's like, it's if, the, if most people, I mean, the way they pick the team is whoever has the highest percentage of the A standard, the top 60 people go. And so, um, the long jump A standard, because the guys were long jumping, ridiculous and, you know, doing things that have never been done before in a prosthetic, the long jump, I would, the long jump A standard, I would say is probably like 24 feet, 25 around there. It's, it's far. And so I know that in long jump, I may not have the best chance of making this absolute standard, but that doesn't necessarily throw you out of metal, throw me out of metal contention because at the games, who knows what can happen. And so with um so yeah i want to be jumping around 21 22 i mean who who really knows what's going to happen i I'm, I'm definitely confident in my ability that i can go farther and i can more things we can dial in i can get stronger i can get faster but yeah the long jump standard is pretty crazy because those i mean the re world record was just recently broken i mean it's just constantly being all these guys are just super competitive in the long jump category and so hopefully in tokyo i'll be up there with them jumping those marks <laughs> Right. And you are, you're a bit of a wild card in a lot of ways, just because who knows, as you continue to mature, you can gain, have some huge gains that these guys who are adults just can't even, can't even fathom having those kinds of gains. So your main event is the high jump though. This is the one where you've had the most success thus far. And you said that you're hoping to jump six feet. So six feet is is pretty amazing really i mean you look at six feet and it's i mean you're 511 so you are jumping an inch over your head yeah that's the plan hopefully we'll hopefully i'll be going you know well above six feet but for, for right now six feet is uh 
six feet is something that's, you know, and it's pretty crazy to look at because, I mean, I was a year ago, I was jumping like five, six, five, seven. And then now, you know, we've been putting a lot of work in and hopefully uh, a six foot jump is not too far down the horizon. And then by the time Tokyo rolls around, I'm, I mean, cause six feet would have six feet would have gotten me if I jumped that at world championships, that would have been a bronze medal or a silver medal. So in the high jump, I'm definitely closer to being competitive than I am in the long jump in the hundred meter right now, based based on what I jumped at the last world championships and sort of where I am. But yeah, so high jump, if I can get above six feet, it'll put me in a really good position for, for Tokyo, yeah. For metal contention. What, is, what does that look like? Like you come, you come onto, you're on the apron there and, and you're coming up to the bar and the bar is over, over your head. How do you, how do you comprehend that? Like intellectually that you are going to jump over this thing that is over your head. Cause it's so ridiculously cool, but how do you, how do you understand it in sort of a spatial way? First of all, thank you. <laughs> and uh, se um, second, I, I, I mean, you slowly, you slowly start building up and there's a lot of times I'm just completely honest with you. I jump and it's in practice. It's absolutely horrible. My coach goes, what the hell just happened? And I go, I got scared. I just got scared. It just happens. And it's cause it's a bar and it hurts if you land on it. And if you like land directly on it and it's high and you know how, like it's, I mean, granted you, we train so much and you practice so much you condition yourself to putting yourself in the situation. So if you do see a really high bar, you, you know how to, handle it you know how to react you know what to think but there's still times i'll go up i'll just whiff a jump completely and i'm just like yeah we'll do that i just got scared and it's just like it just happens sometimes you psych yourself out and the whole point i mean yes you know a lot of the guys they jump with like this bungee up that's not like a real bar it's very like soft so if you it does it like if you land on it, it doesn't hurt and we used to do that a lot but we realized when I would get to competition, I would get so like freaked out about an actual bar, it would throw me off. And so now we haven't used that in seven months. We just don't use that anymore because we know the effect it has when I get to competition. I'm going to be more timid, you know, looking at a bar. So it's just conditioning yourself to not being afraid of those sites. And also when I'm jumping and I'm bending down a little bit, so the bar looks even higher. So it just adds another component of just being, you just, I just jump and, you know, Hope that I get over it. <laughs> well, that is, I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be intimidating, but it's also, that's gotta be the cool part too. I mean, I would imagine that the cool part is, is looking at this and saying, because they're really, there can't be that many people in the world who are jumping over six feet. I mean, it's not, it's not a huge number. It's not a tiny number, but, but it's probably not a, not a gigantic number of people. And to be one of those people has to be really cool. Yeah, it is. It is really cool. And, and six feet is, I want to be the most short term goal to be surpassed. I want to be, you know, hopefully in, in one of the first people with an above the knee amputation to be jumping seven feet, you know, who like, there's no, who, who, who knows what could, who knows what could happen? Who knows what, you know, could end up happening in LA and Paris and all that stuff. So, so six feet right now is, is a pretty big number for me just cause like, it's, it's something I've, I've always wanted to, you know, clear six feet and be competitive with all these guys. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, it's cool to think about that. There's not even that many able-bodied people that can do that. And, and I mean, yes, yeah, it's, it's cool to think about. Yeah. Is that, 
sort of the, the height when you feel like you're kind of legit. You know, it's kind of like going into the weight room in some ways when, when you finally put two plates on the, uh, on the bench press and you're, you're doing 225. It's like, okay, like, like, like you're legit. You're not just playing around now. Is, is six feet that kind of demarcation line in the high jump? For me, I hold myself to higher standards than probably the majority of the people who are out there competing on the international circuit. I know for a lot of the other guys, I mean, there's a lot of guys out there who I'm competing against who haven't ever cleared six feet. I mean, granted, it's like it's 183 meter, 183, 1.83 meters for them because they use the metric system and we're weird in the U.S. But, um, but yeah, so the majority of the guys haven't don't really clear six feet that often or haven't cleared it before. And so I would say for me, it's definitely when I, I know when I'm hitting six feet consistently, when I'm getting those heights that uh, I'm in a great position to medal in Tokyo. And that, and that's really all like, but who, who knows what can happen in Tokyo The we could end up jumping five ten, or I could jump five, eight and somehow medal. I could jump six, three, like, like what, whatever happens on the day is completely you know, unexpected. And so, but yeah, definitely for me, I would say hitting six feet is going to be a point like, okay, like now you're in metal conversation. Like before you're just sort of like this, you're there, you're sort of the future. You're sort of, I, you, you're clearing six feet, you're in metal contention, which is something that not a lot of people can ever say they've had the opportunity to do so. And you're doing that. Like that's, that's when I'm like, okay, this does like now that's, that's for real. If that makes sense. I mean, yeah. To back up first, what's, what's the world record? for your class for T63? 6'3 right now. 6'3, okay. And you've been doing some training. I was checking out a video that you have on your Instagram where you were doing a, a box jump. And so, so you got up on top of a 54 inch box. So what's that? That's four and a half feet, right? Yeah. And then, and then you were really close to getting up onto a 60 inch box to jumping up and landing on a 60 inch box. So yeah. this is, this is pretty incredible. I mean, it's, to watch it is just so cool. And, and you're bouncing in, you're just, you just have the one leg, you have your prosthetic off then. You're bouncing in. What's the objective when you're trying to get up there? What are you teaching your body? Yeah, for sure. I think, well, we really started doing these, these box jumps once the pandemic hit and I wasn't really able to high jump because, you know, there was the place where I usually jump my school that was closed down. Um, and UCLA, we weren't able to really high jump there. And so, um, I was not able to really get a lot of the high jumping in that I usually had been before. So we went to this one gym, let us train there. And we started doing these box jumps. So we just started going up and up and up. Um, and because the higher I'm box jumping, basically is just showing the higher I'm able to jump, the higher I'm able to get my body in the air, which is something, you know, which is directly applies to high jump, directly correlates to any sort of track and field thing, just being the most explosive up off the ground. And so, um, I mean, we just, and I just sort of, almost like fell in love with just like box jumping and getting jumping as high as you can. Cause it's also an art. I mean, there's a lot of technique that involves with crunching your body into the position to be able to lift your feet that high. But objectively it's basically, I want to get as high up in the air as I can. Cause if you think about it, if I can land on a five foot box with my foot on a five foot box, that means my upper body is really close to a, or above six feet 
which means if I can get my upper body to six feet in a position, then I can be able to high jump over six feet. So it's all just about getting as high up in the air as I can so that when I do at a high jump, which I have been recently, I've been, you know, jumping occasionally, it's really translated. I'm jumping higher than I've ever had because of the, the box jump we've done. Because of the explosion exercises that you've been doing and probably the skill oriented, I mean, the proprioception to be able to get up that high, bring your foot up and try to land on the box. And the thing is, you're, you're, you're risking a fair amount too, as opposed to like when you're jumping into the pit, you're jumping into, granted, you said the bar is hard, but you're landing in the pit. So at least the pit is soft. Whereas if you're, if you don't make it onto the box, you can go backwards and land back on the floor. So you're yeah. risking a little bit more there. Yeah, there's a little bit more of the risk for sure. But. Now you were doing it and you posted that you were doing it barefoot. And you asked, why are you doing it barefoot? I don't know why you're doing it barefoot. So I'm going to ask you, why were you doing it barefoot? So I usually wear a certain type of these certain shoes that I like to box jump in because they're the lightest. Um, the Nike Reacts are the ones that I usually uh, just gave them a free promo. But I, the ones that I usually try to box, these are the ones I usually box jump in. And that day I didn't know we were box jumping. So I wore a different shoe just from thinking about it. So then we ended up starting the box. She's like, my coach was like, we're going to start box jumping. And then I tried it in the other shoes and they're kind of like a little bit heavier. They're not as light. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to try and barefoot today because I don't really like the feel. And I tried it barefoot and actually was like, great. And it was like, I jumped pretty well at this. So <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. So it wasn't a workout oriented thing. Cause that's what I was trying to think is that, uh-huh. you know, it was like the born to run kind of thing that if you're, yeah, if yeah. you're, if you're barefoot, that then you're developing more muscles in your feet or something like that, they could help your balance or something, but it wasn't that. There, there are stuff that, that we, we do barefoot or my coaches, like maybe use one of your socks or something like that. Um, but that one specifically, no, that's interesting. It was, it was more just like a spontaneous, like, I'm just gonna try barefoot. I don't like the shoes and then it worked out. So <laughs> I was giving you more benefit of the doubt. So now you've, you've obviously done a fair amount of media. Did I read correctly that you were on good morning America when you were four years old? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was when I was four. Yeah. Four years old. Good morning yeah. America. This is like Tiger Woods being on the Mike Douglas show, like back when he was a little kid. What were you doing on, on Good Morning America when you were four years old? Yeah, it was, um, I don't really know how we actually got started, like how we got on the show. It was, it was my parents were surprising me with my favorite basketball player, Pau Gasol. And I was a huge, I still am a huge Lakers fan. And so they set this all up and then we went backstage of a Laker game. And then we ended up, he came back in, surprised me. It was like this whole thing. Um, I'm not sure how we originally, I, maybe that was the whole premise of it was like surprising. It was, but I got surprised with my favorite basketball player, which was cool. So that was, that was the, uh, that was the idea of it. Yeah. How the player was on my leg. Like I had a picture of him on my prosthetic leg. I, he was my favorite. So they surprised me with him and I got to like show him and it was cute. Yeah that's awesome it, but is this is this kind of a child prodigy thing is this the kind of thing where people where people knew back then like hey check this out four years old we need to get this kid on because he's going places first of all <laughs> i don't thank you for saying that i'm not i don't know if that's i don't know if that's what it was i don't know if they were like this kid's gonna be 
I, I don't know. This kid's going to go. I, I, I'm probably not, but who knows? I'm not sure. Because for you, it's, you are about the competition, but partnering with your father, you created Angel City Sports, right? And so can you describe what Angel City Sports is and, and why, why you decided you wanted to do this? Why the two of you decided you wanted to do this? Yeah, for sure. Basically, my dad and I, my dad took me to my first ever track competition ever when I was eight years old. So that started all of this that I'm even doing to begin with. And we flew across the country for it. And my mom, it was in like Oklahoma, a tornado had just like rolled through there. My mom almost didn't even let us go to the competition because she was concerned that some natural disaster would happen. It was this whole thing. We ended up going anyways. And my dad at one of the, one of the events, actually at long jump, the first time I did long jump, my dad was like, why are we flying halfway across the country to run, jump and throw stuff? Right? Why, why, why isn't this happening in Los Angeles? Why is this happening in Southern California? There's a community, there's the people, there's the weather, there's, there's the facilities, there's so much, you know, there's such a big adaptive community in, in, in Los Angeles. Why is there no any sort of Paralympic competition or any sort of community being gathered there? So that was when the idea really happened. Um, he came up with, uh, I guess, sort of the premise of this organization that is able to provide sports for people with physical disabilities. And then fast forward now, five years later, or no, eight, seven years later from that, that first track competition, you know, we're helping thousands of people with physical disabilities get access to sports with programming, equipment, training, competition. Um, and then we do year round clinics. And then we have resource night, re athlete resource night for basically providing like a community for you know, people with physical disabilities because people with physical disabilities don't really feel like they belong anywhere. And I you know, know from firsthand experience, you feel like an outsider everywhere you go. You're always stared at. You're always sort of like, you know, I'm always labeled as just a kid with one leg. People are always staring at me everywhere I go. Um, and so pe people with physical disabilities are bullied in significantly higher numbers in, in schools and those who are able-bodied. And so to be able to provide their community where people can come to an event, they can come to a clinic, they can join a Zoom now, a Zoom link now because of the pandemic and realize that like, hey, I'm not alone. There's other people out there like me. And we're basically, you know, uniting the community through sport and, and improving everyone's mental health overall. So that's, that's basically uh, the, what Angel City Sports is and what we do. But yeah, no, it's, it's an honor to do that stuff. So. And, and the hope is that it's, or, or it's not just about kids though too, right? It's kids oh, and, and adults, right? adults, veterans, anyone with a physical disability. And it's interesting because the adults, the people who may have an injury and get in a car accident and lose their leg are inspired by the little kids who have always had a prosthetic or the kid who's always had that disability, right? And then the little kids are inspired by those older guys doing something, you know, that they may be, so it's like a circle of inspiration that continues around. Um, but yeah, no, adults, veterans, anyone with physical disability. Yeah, the symbiotic kind of event. And effectively, what you're doing, the big event is an Olympic, Paralympic, multi-sport event where everybody comes together and you have it together and you have your Paralympic athletes that, who, have, who have come to it. You've got some stars who have come to it. I kind of have to ask you, I mean, you're in LA, right? I mean, you're starting and obviously your mother's an actor as well so so you've had some access access to to some of the stars are you allowed to say that you have a favorite star who has come to to the event 
I mean, Powell might be, might be the guy, and I know that his foundation is involved with Angel City as well. Yeah, Powell's, Powell's a great guy. If Powell's one of – he's still really close to the family. I don't know if I have a, a favorite star just because, you know, we've had Adam Sandler. We've had, you know, Christian Bale. We've had our fair share of stars. And everyone's – we have Michael Pena. Everyone's super amazing. Everyone's super down to earth. I don't know if I have a favorite one. I guess Powell, if I had to pick, like, it'd be Powell just because I've known him for so long. And he's been, you know, connected with us for so long. Since I was four years old, he's basically, like, watched me like, grow up in a sense. Um, so if I, if I like had to, but then again, like I, you know, we're grateful for all the support that we get from, from anyone who's ever come out. So I, it was, uh, yeah, if I had to, I'd say Pat, just cause he's, we've known him for so, so long. How about on the Paralympic side? Did you have a, a sprinter, a jumper who came, who is kind of your hero, your Paralympic hero that you're like, oh, this is so cool. I get to meet so-and-so. Yeah, for sure. The cool thing about the Paralympic community is everybody is so close and so tight knit that a lot of the guys who were like my hero or my inspiration or the guy that I watched are also like really close to us. And we like knew pretty well or have met before. Um, so yeah, there was this one guy, Sam grew and he, I, he was, he's the same disability classification as me, T63. And I watched him in Rio compete in the high jump and he got silver. And now he's the world record holder and he's been a mentor to me throughout this entire process. And in Peru at the Pan American Games, we went one, two. So he got gold and broke the world record. And I got silver right behind him. And he's literally like an older brother to me. We FaceTime all the time. We call, you know, critiquing each other's form, advice, blah, blah, all this stuff. He's like one of the, one of the closest people to me on the team. But he was like sort of like my, like this big guy, like no, here, someone who I looked up to. And he became like a mentor to me. And then now we're hoping to go into Tokyo and go one, two and do something that, you know, two U.S. guys have never really done before in the high jump. So he's, he in the Paralympic world is my, would say, would be like my, my mentor, my inspiration. And then he end, ended up competing with me and competing together and becoming really close. So it was cool. Did you imagine that that could happen? That this guy who is your mentor, who in some ways was your hero, suddenly becomes your, becomes your peer and becomes your competition. I mean, you went one, two, where he, broke the world record and you were second, but it could flip flop in Tokyo where he's chasing you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, it's definitely crazy. Cause like all these guys who I was like, when I was 10, 11 years old, I was watching on TV, even just the guys I was competing, even the guys that I competed against in 2019, like from other countries, I would watch that. I've been watching them on TV. Then the next year I'm there, I'm with them. I'm, I'm like, dude, like I've watched, I've watched YouTube videos like about you. Like I, like it was, it was weird. And obviously I didn't want to go out there and be like that, the fanboy that's just like freaking out everywhere. But I was inside. No one could know. I was playing it cool, acting all time. But really I was like, whoa, this is crazy. But yes, yeah, so it was cool. And definitely, you know, regarding Sam, um, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Tokyo? I mean, he's, he's an, he's an amazing jumper and I have, I have ways to go before I, you know, surpass him but but he's been and it's so cool because at some point you know he's gonna retire and i'm gonna or i'm gonna pass him off at some point whether that be tokyo or Paris, who knows what's gonna be but he's still helping me he's still you know helping me out with my form and giving me life advice you know on, on girls on this on school and blah, blah, blah. like he's like he's literally like a big brother to me and so yeah so it's pretty crazy and surreal to think about that like four or five years ago, he was just like this like big Paralympic guy. Now he's like really close to me. Have you always had 
a philosophy? I mean, I watched your, I watched your interview with Ellen, uh, <laughs> nine years old, and I'm assuming you still have that basketball court. I saw another where you were stretching and you still have that basketball court that they gave you from the Ellen show. I'm assuming that's still the same one. Yeah, yeah still there. That's awesome. But you said there that being different, and so you were nine years old when you did this interview. You said being different is okay. You said you can dream it, you can hope it, you can make it happen. And you said focus on what you have versus what you don't have. Those are some pretty heady, mature concepts for a nine-year-old. How did this work? Did you come up with these by yourself? Was this something that there was a collective part with the family or how did, how did these things end up coming out of the mouth of a nine-year-old on the Ellen DeGeneres show? I don't remember how I just came up with that sort of stuff, but it was, I mean, I had been giving public speeches for a while and so that sort of mentality, that sort of those mantras were things that I just sort of developed as I was speaking to people and as I uh, began really sharing my story. Um, it it definitely, my parents definitely didn't uh, come up with that, uh, but it was, it was, yeah, I don't, I, and on the Ellen show, I mean, she asked great questions. She's a great interviewer. I mean, hence she's one of the most famous talk shows in history, but, right. but yeah, but I, it was, it's just sort of, it was sort of a part of my story, what I, what I talked about and the messages that I shared. And so and I was grateful for the opportunity to say that on a, a really prolific stage in front of so many people. But yeah, it was, it was sort of, it was what I, those were the mantras, those were the messages that I had um, and that I had been, been saying for a while. Did, did those come out of some difficulty? I mean, you, you are different than, than the other kids in your class. Right, so being being different is okay. Is this something? Did, did did it come out of a difficult moment? Did it, you know, did did this did this genius in some ways come out of come out of you know come out of some pain? I think I think with any any of the stuff that I had that I've said, it all came from. I wouldn't necessarily label I label it as pain, but definitely personal experience. Like I have. I have felt excluded. I, I had felt left out. Um, and I had went through points in my life when I was really young where I just was like, why am I the only person in my, like, I just felt so, I felt like I didn't understand all of this. You know, I went through those dark moments and I mean, it came with time where I just realized I was like, like I was born this way. There's nothing I can do. I can't change the fact that I have one leg. I can't change the fact that I have two fingers. I'm in this body for life. And, and so I, I just knew that I couldn't sit and wallow in that darkness and the sadness. And I had to make the most out of my life. And my, you know, my mom, obviously she's being the, the actress and public speaker she is, she helped me sort of get my ideas out in a more um, understandable and, and, and well-spoken way as a nine-year-old um, or as when, even when I was younger, when we started really public speaking, but, but it just, it did come from personal experience and, you know, and realizing that like being different is okay and I am different and that's okay. And there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm going to make the most of my life. I'm going to live, you know, the, the happiest nine-year-old life that I, you know, that I could at the time. But yeah, so that's, yeah, definitely from personal experience and from the struggles that I sort of went through, you know, learning to accept myself, I would say. 
how much have you, has that kind of a philosophy helped people who don't have a disability? Yeah, I think, I think, I don't like to, I don't like to like toot, toot my own horn or whatever it's called, but like, I think it's- Well, what have people told you? Have people told you, hey, hey, thank you for saying that this has helped me? Because you can't project onto them, but you can tell us what they oh, said people, to you. Yeah, people have said, just because like, like, everybody feels self-conscious about something within their life. People, there's, you're not going to find a single person who is confident and 100% about everything. And so I think, but getting people to learn to accept themselves, because they're like, hey, if this kid at you know nine, eight years old is talking about him struggling, learning to accept himself and being proud of his disability and being, being different is okay and who he is, and like, you know, maybe my insecurity about, you know, my, my big nose or my insecurity about this acne or blah, blah, blah. Like, like it makes people feel, um, you know, that they're related to in a sense and, and that, Hey, if like this, if someone's able to, you know, learn to accept themselves for having something that's really like a visible physical disability, you know, that I can get, I can get through this myself. And so I think it's cool. Cause like, even for me, I was, I was able to learn to accept myself from relating to other people and other people sharing their stories within the Paralympic community. Like that helped me. And so to be able to help other people, it's just like almost like, like this, you know, the effect of this person helping me and I'm helping someone else. And um, so it's cool to sort of see that. Uh, but yeah, it really, it just, I, hopefully I have helped some people, um, but just from the stuff that I've heard, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to see someone else, you know, who's learned to accept themselves and, and learn to get through their challenges because it inspires you to do the same within your life. Do you feel like, it makes you it makes you stronger to be able to just say this is who i am and is that part of the message that you're sharing yeah 100% my mom always taught me when i was growing up to just walk around with my chest out like walk into the room and act like you own the place like act have so much confidence within yourself like cuz i mean when i was younger like i was self conscious about my leg i was hide my hand and i was all this sort of like, cause it's, it's difficult when you're like the only one in your friends who has a prosthetic leg and you know, everywhere I'm going, there's people like staring and pointing fingers and whispering. But once I learned to just like own it and I was just like, yo, who cares? Go stare at me, go ahead, stare at me. Like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Once I had that sort of like, like, like this is who I am mentality. Like, what am I going to do? So that's when I really began to learn to accept myself and not sort of sit in that pity circle of like, Oh, why me? You know what I mean? That's when I really sort of, the shift occurred. When you honed in on who you were going to be and didn't have to worry about showing up and performing for other people. Cause being a teenager is hard. I mean, just flat out being a teenager, people, why are you staring at me? Stop, you know, stop staring at me. <laughs> Sports were a big part of it for you though, weren't they? A big part of how did that, did that change the way that like your classmates looked at you? when you got on the field, when you got on the basketball court, when you got on the track? I, I think sports is, is the reason that I, or one of the reasons that I'm able to be confident in who I am today and be able to, you know, speak about this and, you know, spread awareness because dude, sports has played such a huge impact on me because growing up sports was everything. I watched basketball games 24 seven and I loved all types of sports and so when I I do think it's an interesting point that in depth I'm, I'm sure it played um impact on how other people looked at me because you know I might be this kid with one leg but when we get on the basketball court I'm com competing equal if you know if not better than most of the guys there so it almost created a um they're like oh wow this kid 
he, he is pretty normal. He's going out here and scoring points and doing all this stuff. So I think, and also sports has just such an impact on me psychologically, right? Because when I'm playing basketball, when I'm sprinting, when I'm high jumping, like I'm taken away from everything that's going on. I'm always under, I'm, I'm taken away from, you know, the fact that I'm always stared at, underestimated. I'm in like this zone where I'm not worried about my disability. I'm just focused on the sport. And it almost created like a level playing field for me where I was just one of the guys. I was just one of the guys over there. I wasn't like labeled as like the kid with one leg. I was like, he's on a, he's playing basketball, he's scoring, he's doing everything like all the other classmates. So for sure, I completely agree with that. But you weren't exactly one of the guys though. I mean, like you were the, you were the point guard on the basketball team. You were the quarterback, you were the guy running it. So, so you went from, from being the guy who was sort of excluded the guy with a prosthetic leg to the guy who was in charge. Did that, did that shift the dynamic? You know, like, I, are your friends looking at you going, Oh, okay. Like we got to talk to this guy. Like he's got to teach us. I, I think that's an interesting way to put it. I think, I mean, I always, I always sort of defined myself as like an athlete when I was younger, not necessarily like a kid with disability. And because I was playing sports and because I was able to be, I guess, naturally somewhat gifted at a few, a few of sports and the stuff that we played, I, I think it, it did create a lot of common ground between me and my friends. And I, I just wasn't, as I got older, I just wasn't the kid with a disability at the school. Like I wasn't labeled as that kid. I was just, I, I became... Um, a lot of the kids in my grade, they would just begin to look past my disability as every, as they should, but it was just, diff- it was, became more, it became easier for them to look past disability and see me for who I am when I had such common ground with everyone. And I became sort of like a little bit known around the school for being athletically good at certain things. So it, um, it definitely created a better case for me to become, you know, friends with a lot more of the guys, but yeah, that's, yeah, I, I definitely think that. that Do you- do you feel that responsibility when you step into a different arena? When you leave the sports world, the sports world, people know where you are, you have a resume. When you step into something else, do you feel a responsibility to, to get people to see beyond the prosthetic leg or, or do you just kind of just show up as you are? That's really interesting. I, I don't think I do. Um, it, it, anymore just because if someone isn't able to originally look past my disability and is stuck up on the fact or you know whether they're making fun of me or calling me names whatever like I wouldn't want them in my life to begin with because they're basically showing their true colors right now so I feel like I uh and also but it was when I was you know trying to be accepted by all these kids it was it was more in like the the younger grades where everything is more um every not not I wouldn't necessarily it, everything was more you know, I, I was with these kids for a while. I was going to be with these kids for the next five to 10 years. And, and, and so I, I felt like more of a responsibility and more of a, a need to sort of fit in and become one of the guys. When in reality, like if I'm stepping into meeting new kids or um, if I were to like transfer schools and go meet new people, I wouldn't feel the need to have to find that common ground and to sort of prove myself as not the kid with disability, just because I really don't care what they think at this point. And I've become so so you know confident within myself and you know accepted of who i am that like someone can't see past my disability i don't want you in my life to begin with that's not a positive influence around me and so i think when i was younger it was um it was difficult to sort of get to that point but as i got older i was just as came with the realization and came with me accepting who i am that you know if i if i go somewhere i'm not worried about proving myself or i'm not worried i'll be the kid with the disability you know, y'all, that's who I am. Like, I am that kid. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no negative connotation. There's no positive connotation. I just, 
I'm the kid with disability and that's just, you know, who I am. Do you, the flip side of that though, or do you ever find yourself in a situation where you on, on first, on first look, you underestimate someone and then they surprise you? Like, like physically or just like in general? It's like Physically and mentally, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're always the stories of like, you know, the, you know, you go in for the business meeting and, and, and you think that somebody's the janitor and it's actually the CEO of the company or something like that, you know, and it's like, you can, you can make an assumption about somebody, oh, that person's not important. Does it change the way that you look at it? Do you see other people for their potential? Or, or are there sometimes where you, where you feel yourself going, hey, I might have just underestimated somebody? I think it definitely makes me more prone because I've been underestimated to under, uh, not underestimate people as much. Mm-hmm. I think there's times, like any human being, you're going to underestimate someone or maybe you even you know, don't think you're underestimating them, but subconsciously they perform better than you expected, which could also be considered underestimating or they do something that you didn't expect. So I think they're like any, any, I go through, you know, there's obviously moments like that, but I don't tend to think of myself as someone who generally underestimates people. And I think because of my disability and because I've been underestimated, uh, I'm less likely to underestimate someone just because I, I can sort of relate to that. But then again, there's always times where someone performed ridiculously well that you didn't expect or this happens. And, you know, so there's always times, but I think majority of the time I, I, I'm more prone to not underestimating people as much as, you know, I guess the normal person would, but. Well, I mean, we're involved in the world of sports too, right? And we love the underdog, the person or the team or whatever, who does something that nobody expected. Because I think in a lot of ways, we all feel like we're the underdog. And we go, oh, the underdog won. Okay, so that means that we won. This is awesome. Do you feel like in some ways, one of the questions is for for a lot of people is, is how do you and how did your family deal with the situation. I mean, I'm a congenital, a congenital issue. I mean, your mother said in one interview that she didn't even know that, that there were kids being born with missing, missing limbs or, or missing fingers or these kinds of things. Do you, you know, how, how do people create that kind of resilience to be able to approach it in a powerful way? And, and, and in specifically for you guys. Yeah. It's, it's definitely difficult. I mean, for any parent, um, I mean, my, my dad has talked about how he was, you know, concerned that he wouldn't be able to obviously do the things that, you know, any parent dreams of doing with their kid in a sense. Thankfully, my parents were basically treated me like they would treat any other kid. Like the, my disability wasn't holding me back or wasn't stopping me. And which is part of the reason that I, that I sort of grew up with the mentality that, that the, my disability isn't going to hold me back. And that's why they did put me in, recreational sports and they did put me in soccer and basketball and when I was younger and I got my first prosthetic they did teach you know practice walking around the couches and knocking off you know little towers that they would build like and they would with any other kid and so almost instilling that resiliency in me when I was younger allowed and you're the me- oldest right I'm the oldest yeah I'm the oldest, oldest of three three okay and so by by them doing that um you know, it allowed me to have this sort of, you know, like, as I got older, the mentality, like I, they're treating me like I would, they would treat any other kid. So my parents, you know, believe that I can do anything. Why, why can't I do anything? And so it was amazing of them to have that because it's, it's difficult. And, you know, I've, I've gotten lots of DMs about, of, you know, parents of kids with disabilities and messages like, Hey, like, 
you know, we're really struggling. We have our tough days. Like we don't know what to do. And so I'm, I mean, it's really cool that I'm able to, you know, share wisdom and share knowledge. And my parents are able to do the same for people who have, who are going through what we went through at one point. So yeah, it's great. Do you think that your, that the experience of your grandparents gave your family a bit of an advantage? Yeah, just because my, my grandparents immigrated uh, to the U.S. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like leaving the revolution in, in Iran. And, and I don't know if this is true, but, but I was reading that, that, that your, mother, your mother's family was, was Persian, Jewish Persian. Is that right? Um, in, in Iran. In Iran, yeah. But, and so, which, which seems like a difficult situation while they were in Iran, but then leaving, leaving before the revolution, coming, coming to the U.S. and having to pick up and start all over again. It's, yeah, it was definitely difficult. And I think the resilience of my um, grandparents and just them moving, because you think about it, moving to a whole new country, starting with absolutely nothing, that's hard. That's difficult to do. And uh, starting a whole new life from like literally nothing. And they were able to do so. And they were able to provide for my, my mom and my aunt. And then, you know, they're, they, the wealth were able to provide for my parents to provide for our family today. But I think it started, um, it definitely, my mom, I, I, she could probably attest to this, you know, just as much as I can, that knowing that your parents went through so much to provide you with such an amazing life and the resilience that they went through. Um, that it made sense why she, my mom sort of treated me that way and with the same, with similar resilience that my grandparents had experienced when they immigrated to the U.S. So yeah, for sure. When we started, we were talking about your goals. We were talking about qualifying for the games, all of these things. What do you tell yourself when it's difficult, when you need to keep going and it just seems like nothing's working out right? You, you're prosthetic hurts you you're you can't jump within a foot of what you're supposed to jump and what do you tell yourself yeah for sure and like that happens a lot like I'm not gonna sugarcoat and act like it's some sort of like happy sunshine like all the time like like it there's times where it sucks I don't want to train I'm in a lot of a little in a lot of physical pain beginning of the pandemic you know we originally went into quarantine I didn't train at all. I was just, for the beginning portion, I was just so like, you know, annoyed that the games had been postponed. I just went through, I just was the least motivated I've ever been in my entire life. But because I went through that, I realized that I was going through the, and I, I just thought, I, and also I think about Tokyo all the time. You know, they say you are what you think about or they are, you are what you, you know, what you envision and you imagine. I, I think about Tokyo all the time. I, I'm constant, that takes up, my brain, you know, a lot of teenage guys think about, you know, think about girls, think about their social life, think about all this sort of stuff. And like, sure, like, I'm a normal teenager, I'm going to think about that stuff too, occasionally. But the majority of my, you know, brain capacity is to school and to training, and to thinking about the track and watching tape and, you know, laying in my bed, envisioning what's going to happen in Tokyo. And so because I think about it so much, whenever I'm you know, I'm not motivated. I don't want to work out. I don't want to do this. I, you know, oh, this, this is happening. The blades, this, blah, 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 all that stuff going on. I just think about Tokyo. I'm like, like, do I want it? Like, do I really want that? Okay. Then I got to put my head down at work. Okay. I just got to do it. And that's part of the thing is just like, aren't you going to put my head down? And it's, and once you sort of get it, once I've gotten into like this sort of groove, 
it's difficult to fall out of that motivation train because that's all you think about. That's all you, you're putting everything you are towards that one goal. So it's difficult for me now, especially putting in so much more time to just sort of like drop out of it and just be unmotivated, if that makes sense. How did you break the negative train after the pandemic hit to get back to say, okay, I'm going to go to work. I don't know when it's going to happen. When Tokyo, because Tokyo, Tokyo was that thing that you could, that you could almost feel. And then now it, it's, it's more like water slipping through your fingers kind of thing. Yeah. When it, it was, I mean, I, I did go through that all like super sad and all this stuff, but it wasn't really until I, one, I saw other guys working out too. I saw other guys because my competition training and it pissed me off. I was like, okay, I'm working out now. And then um, the other thing was that I just felt so like I was way sadder than I usually am. I just felt gross. I just felt like wasn't taking care of myself. And I just didn't want to feel like that. And the more I thought about Tokyo, I was like, I have a chance if some of these guys are working, but if I can really push and I can really put in more time here, by the time it rolls around, there's a chance of the games happening. Cause we, by that time we hadn't known that it was actually going to, we didn't really know what, what it was going to look like, but that's when I was like, that's when I was like, okay, I got to push through this and get through here, get through the pandemic. And then I'll be in the straightaway, you know, heading into Tokyo. And I, so definitely seeing other guys though, that was definitely a big part. I was like, okay, if they're working, I'll just work harder now. Simple. That was what it was like. But part of it was, was the feeling you said that, that you're just, you didn't feel good. You didn't feel good about yeah. yourself without the work. How do you look at, at your goals? Cause you're, cause you're hitting on something that's really important, right? Is, is, in terms of the the work that you put in versus versus sort of the expectations that you have what's your perspective on on how you approach what you expect from yourself when you can say hey i really did exactly what i wanted to do the the one sort of not mantra but i would say thought process that i sort of like live by right now as far as training goes is i want to walk off the track in tokyo for the last time, knowing I have no regrets. If I have, I, that's, it will haunt me till the day I die. If I know I walked off Tokyo with any last thing I could have, any last effort I could have given, any last adjustment we could have made, any last, you know, morning I could have woken up and trained, I know it will haunt me until the day I die if I don't give every single thing that I have. And so because I, I know that I love this sport and I will give up anything to make, to compete at that level. Cause honestly, it's a lot of sacrifices for me. Like though everyone puts in work and, and, and everyone puts in hard work and all these guys are competing and putting in all these crazy amounts of work. But for me right now, like all the, the hard work, the physical aspect is, is not, I wouldn't say easy, but it's the fun part. The, the, the difficult part is the sacrifices. The difficult part is not going out with my friends and, you know, getting a, a good night of sleep one night or, you know, staying up late doing homework because I had just been training before and they're not going and eating ice cream and, you know, you know, eating all this unhealthy stuff. And it's all those little things, all the sacrifices that I'm having to make in order, because I know that I'll regret it so much if I don't give it everything I have, because how much I want, if that makes any, that's, that's where my head's at. And that's sort of what I live by is like, I want to have no regrets, like not a single regret that I could have done differently. But that's what you're talking about, because some, in some ways, when you first started talking, it sounded like you're talking about the two weeks of the Paralympics, but you're talking about every single day that you're bringing your, it, 
is there is there a trigger? Is there something that gets you into that sense of thinking to say, okay, this is it. I have to seize the day. I have to be my best. I have to get a little bit better today. Or is it something that you're just so captivated by Tokyo that that it just happens naturally? I, I've been thinking about Tokyo since I was 10 years old, since I was, you know, so I, what had, it's not, I wouldn't even consider it something I flip on. It's just how I am throughout the day. Every, every decision that I make, I know is going to have some sort of impact on how I feel, which is going to have some sort of impact on how I train, which is going to have some sort of impact on how I train the next day and leading up to Tokyo. So I think it, it comes, it comes somewhat naturally for me, which I'm really grateful for. It's just like, I care too much to screw this opportunity up. So that's part of, yeah, I could say it comes naturally. I don't, I don't, I do, I do like think about it a lot. So the more I think about it, the more I get like amped up about it. But yeah, I think that's where it comes from. Just like throughout the day naturally. Interesting. Okay. It's, it's funny. I, I wrote down a quote that I kind of liked this, this past week. It's a Rudyard Kipling quote. And he said, if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those imposters just the same. It's part of a, a poem called If. And in, in some ways, what, what that makes me think for you is Tokyo has been it. Like Tokyo has been it for 10 years, which in some ways is like your conscious life. Like, like your independent life. Maybe you were kind of independent by the time you were 10 years old. I mean, you seem pretty articulate and on the ball when you were nine years old talking to Ellen. But, but this is, a, this is a, a big chunk of your life from 10 to 16. How do you look at, because the thing is, there, there is the, the, the sense of, of triumph and disaster in, in a place like Tokyo. You know, you get and you build and you build and you build. What do you do next? What do you do? What do you do after that? And how, how do you how do how do you rekindle that? Have you have you considered that, or is it just simply that that's the finish line? Uh, that's a great question. By no means do do I necessarily think that Tokyo would be the finish line because I know I have a longer career in track and field. Um, you know, you hear a lot about the, the athletes with post games depression because they feel like their livelihood, everything they've cared about is just done. It's over. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'll have some of that. Like I'm pretty certain I'll have some sort of post game depression in a sense, but I think that's part of the process for me. Part of the thing is like, like who knows what can happen in Tokyo? Like I could go out there and you know, I could meddle in all three of my events. I could meddle in none of them. I could meddle in who, like who knows what's going to happen, but everything I'm doing I could, if I know that I gave it a hundred percent and I know that I have no regrets, even if I don't meddle, but I just, I'm walking off the track with no regrets, I'll be satisfied. If that makes sense. I, I know that I gave it everything I can. So whether that's, um, whether that's three medals, whether that's one medal, whether that's two medals. And, and I'm, I'm fairly confident. And I'm very certain that I'll go out there and I'll, you know, medal and I'll do what I'm planning on doing. Say that doesn't happen though. I know that if I have given everything I can to the sport and have given everything I can to the games that I have to be content with the results. And so if that's no medals, but I gave it everything I had and I, you know, then, okay, it'll make me work harder for Paris then, you know, that's sort of like the mentality that I have right now. No, that's absolutely awesome. And exactly what you'd hope for is the idea of you're continuing to build and, 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 and all you can do is work hard. I mean, I, I've often thought that that sport is a lifetime of sacrifice for the hope of a 
of a, you know, and, and that sacrifice can be really fun too, but for the hope of a moment of brilliance at the right time, that it all comes together and you have the right race or the right jump or whatever. Uh, we'll get you out on this, on this last question. What does, what does your name mean, Ezra? And what does it mean to you? That's a good question. That's a, that's a good one. My, my name, Ezra, uh, means to help or to teach. And for me, I, I think my name almost um, resembles the impact that I want to have on people and the impact that I want to have on, on the world. It's like, you know, even with Angel City, like the goal is to help. The goal is to make people's lives better. The goal is to improve the lives of, of people who may not have you know, a quote unquote, you know, who may be struggling in any sort of sense. And so um, the, my name to me is just sort of embodies the person that I want to be and embodies the impact that I want to have. And so it's, I mean, it's definitely difficult, you know, to have, to run a, a million dollar organization like my, my dad does. And, you know, so hopefully at some point I'll be running Angel City and I know it'll be difficult. I know it'll you know, there's tons of challenges that come along with this, but having my name is almost like a constant reminder of, of who I am, of what I want to achieve, who I want, the person that I want to be. I want to be the helper. I want to be the teacher. I want to be the person that impacts other people and makes their lives better and, and brings them along with him. And so if I'm able to do that, I'm able to have a constant reminder, which is my name as that 24 seven. Um, yeah, that, that's what it means to me. It's just like, I want to improve the lives of the people around me, people I've never met, people I will meet one day um, and, and, and make an impact. And so if that's, if, if my name um, is, if that is, with that as my name, I think, uh, you know, I, that's what I embody. That's who I am. So. Does it remind you each time, each time you say your name or each time you write your name? Uh, it, it definitely reminds me to an extent at certain times. Uh, I'm gonna be honest. I don't think every time I write my name, I'm not just like, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm You're not I, constantly I'm, in that place. No, I'm not like taking a, a math test and I'm just like Ezra. And then I'm just like, you know, I'm here to help people. It's, it's not like <laughs> I, I do think about it occasionally and, and uh, pretty often I do think about it. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't say every time I write my name. <laughs> That'd be a huge burden. And, and your teacher might think, okay, yeah, maybe you should just take the test and stop worrying about, about teaching and helping people. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I do think about it a lot. Yeah. So I, I would say I do. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so we can follow you at Ezra, at Ezra, it is at, at Ezra 35. Is that what it is? At team Ezra 05. At team Ezra 05. At yeah. team Ezra 05. And so that's, that's on Instagram. Is that TikTok as well? I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not versed at all on TikTok. Twitter, Facebook, all, all social media. That's where it's at. Team Ezra 05, which is your birthday. So that makes sense that, that that's where the 05 is coming from. But people can follow you. There will be a ramp up. Things are still going to be weird as we, as we approach the games, as we approach qualifying. But that'll be the best place to fe for people to watch. You're really good at posting stuff on your training, on some of your mindset, on some of your fun stuff that you're doing. It's entertaining and we'll be able to follow you. I'm sure you'll be really good once you get back into competition, which I'm sure you were just itching to be back in competition. So we've gone a little bit longer than we ordinarily go, but you've been great. So Ezra, thank you so much for, for joining us. 
get out there, represent well, and, uh, and we look forward to seeing you soon. I appreciate it. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me.